Or we'll open and close a few more times and stuff tonight. I, uh, I want to get started in prayer as quickly as we can uh, for, for a bunch of reasons. One is you could easily go five or six hours on this chapter tonight. And I know some of you got to get up for work in the morning. And uh, Keith, are you still here? Uh, Keith will be here in a little while. I have an early appointment with Keith in the morning, so we have to finish sometime between now and then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's go ahead and uh, begin to pray. There are a couple things in addition to our, uh, I mean, we obviously want the, the Lord to open up this chapter to us tonight. Uh, Frank's mother was just rushed to the hospital, and uh, we, we obviously want her to do well. And... Uh, it seems like every time we go to study lately, we're faced with new challenges. We got some negative news about the uh, uh, an infection that Jen still has carrying on in her body from a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the devil's a bully. Yes. And it, it's, it's kind of to push back. And when the news gets so absurdly bad, you know, then you kind of know what's happening. <coughs> and uh, we'll stand up to that in every other threat. Amen? So let's let's start to pray. Uh, you might also find your way in your Bible to Joshua 4. We'll, gym, we'll start reading in just a minute. Father, we, uh, we trust you implicitly. Lord, with all of our heart, we can say like David that we could walk through the shadow of death and be yes. tonight, but it will be worth it. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So, Israel, so the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the twelve stones 
that had been in the middle of the Jordan, at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priest who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over. As soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priest came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up, come out, sorry, come up out of the Jordan. As, and the priest came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stages before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped in Gilgal, Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones that had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea. When he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, Amen. and so that you might always fear the Lord God. I love this book. I, I, I hope that's obvious to you by now. I see it as a forerunner to the book of Revelation. I, uh, the first book of prophecy in the Older Testament is Joshua, and the only book of prophecy in the Newer Testament is Revelation. And I see such an inextricable link between them that it's hard for me not to float back and forth between them. So often in the law when you're reading, it speaks about Israel, 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 and Israel is the center of God's plan. But so often in Joshua, you also hear things like the Lord of all the earth, right? Uh, The first time that phrasing appears in the Bible is really in Joshua 2 when a prostitute named Rahab says it. And that's just an extraordinary view of God, that he reveals himself specifically to a people, that he draws close to himself, but also to the people who are far off. And they have different kinds of insight into his character. Uh, one of the statements that we have picked up is that under close examination, the book of Joshua seems to be a precursor to the book of Revelation, where another Yehoshua as commander-in-chief dispossesses the planet Earth of its usurpers. He first sends two witnesses, and then there's a series of judgments based on seven. Finally, he defeats the kings of the Earth with the sun, the moon, and the star giving witness while the kings are hiding in caves. In both books, that's an extraordinary thing. As we went through the first chapter, you couldn't help but notice the beauty of seven promises that were given. Every place you put your foot uh, from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, I'll be with you. you I'll give it to you. The uh, second one was, no man will be able to stand up to you all the days of your life. 
The third one was, as I was with Moses, I would be with you. Then he gets into this really neat thing that echoes what Jesus said. He said, I will never uh, leave you, which we found out the Hebrew was more like neglect you. And then he says, I will never forsake you or abandon you. The sixth one, you will lead this people to their inheritance. The seventh one, I will be with you wherever you go. With promises like that, we ought to be very bold and courageous. Joshua was bold. We ought to be bold. We, we, by that point in the study, by the time we got to the end of the first chapter, we were already almost seven hours in. When we got to chapter two, you know, and you, you see something as extraordinary as the role of those two witnesses. There's no military campaign. They, they don't bring any knowledge back that is like the walls are weak at this point. They come back and testify to the goodness of God and testify that his promise is true. Your mind really ought to be rattling about Revelation 11 and what the purpose of those witnesses are. But then on a much more practical level, you know, twice in the Newer Testament, Rahab is called a prostitute. She's never called a liar. Not, not, not one time in the Newer Testament. In fact, she's commended for her faith. That ought to give people hope about a life that's transformed, right? Yeah. An acknowledgement of what she was, but as she began to move in, fi- in faith, her life was no longer defined by a perceived mistake. It was defined by that pursuit. That, that just blesses me to death. When we got to the third chapter, uh, we spent, I don't know, three, three hours on Bethabara, uh, House of the Crossing, and we found out how many beautiful things happened in Israel's history at this spot. But maybe most specifically, was this is where John the Baptist began baptizing. That's, uh, you know, there are no coincidences. It's not a kosher word. And uh, I hope your, your appreciation for the text is starting to grow. The layers at which God integrates his design. Most of our beautiful passages are beautiful doctrines in the Bible. Things like the nature of the Godhead or the character of God himself. You, even the nature of salvation, you don't find these things in a single paragraph. What you find, there's no chapter that you turn to and you go, okay, this is the one place in the Bible this is discussed. There's a kind of integrated design where it, it is in the law, the prophets, the writings, Old and New Testament, so that if something happened, God forbid, and you were missing a book of your Bible... There is no major doctrine that would be affected because the same principles are dispersed throughout the Bible so that anybody who honestly examines the text as a holistic thing comes out with the same conclusions. And uh, that's that just points to the mastery of our God and understanding how to disseminate information. We want to start in the first verse tonight. I'm going to tell you, we're going to take rabbit trails uh, on an even more unusual level tonight. Um, and, and there's a reason for it. It's Chapter 4 is like chapter 3. If I got into the chronology now of what's going on in the background for chapter 4, I, there wouldn't be time to cover it. I think I'm going to do it in chapter 5. But these these events are following the week of Passover. There, there's a hint. Um, Before we do that, though, I want to cover some of the biggest, most global pictures that are missed in the Scripture. The Bible is essentially a story about a people, uh, a place, a a specific piece of ground, and a plan. 
And if you change any one of those three things, if you remove those people and insert another group, we, we're in cult status at that point. The Mormons have done it. The Jehovah's Witness have done it. Uh, if you remove the place that these things are supposed to occur, you have so fundamentally changed God's plan that you've made him a liar. His character is in question. And if he does not do for Israel what he said he would do in Israel, there's no hope for you that he will do what you believe he's going to do for you. Amen. So what is integral to this discussion tonight is why God chose Israel for this purpose and what this means. So that is uh, uh, pregnant within this text, but it is also something that we are going to have to jump to lots of other books to see as a part of that integrated design. So, Jim, read that first verse again, and I'll tell you why we're jumping off where we are. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, How much of the nation crossed the Jordan? The whole, the whole nation. nation. The whole nation. Paul does not pull his beliefs out of a vacuum. Uh, the man was thoroughly acquainted with the Tanakh. He had the Torah completely memorized. And when he says, uh, Steve, you read it in Romans eleven twenty six. When he says this, you can believe that it is based on a thorough understanding of the promises of God. If you're making notes right now, our topic is the whole nation. Romans eleven twenty six. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, while you're looking at that, Steve, you go ahead and turn again to uh, 10.1. Just read 10.1. Romans 10.1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God... For the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now read 9, 1 through 3. All I've done is Romans 9, 10, 11, first few verses. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. When he says my people, those of my own race, or he says my brother Israelites, or he is speaking about Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he comes to the point where he says, so all Israel will be saved, if that Israel means something other than the people of his own race, other than his physical brothers, other than Israelites, then what would be the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11? If that is some strange mixture of spiritual Jews or some other uh, erroneous doctrine that is taught, then there would be no point for these chapters. He leaves the terms in place, Jew and Gentile. He adopts new language that says things like natural and wild olive branches. And he, of course, keeps the term Israelite. When Paul makes the statement, all Israel will be saved, one of the neatest places you see that foreshadowed is that every single Israelite crosses the Jordan and goes into the promised land here. But what did they have to go through before that happened? We had a calling of a nation. I mean, we had only two from a generation survive 
the unfaithfulness of the nation. So in one sense, it was only a remnant that was saved, and yet in a very real and practical sense, every single Israelite crossed the whole nation. Does that make sense? Yes. When we... When you start to examine Joshua, you see this kind of stuff a lot. And the reason that I'm pointing it out now is because the more thoroughly you are grounded in the Torah of God, the more you will understand the Newer Testament when you get to it. The reason that the book of Revelation is so badly misrepresented is people have not understood its very foundation. They've approached the book from the wrong direction. And as a Western people reading an Eastern book, it's, it's so much more important for us that we start correctly, that we start from the perspective of a specific people, a specific place, and a specific plan. Because if you back into it some other way, what happens is you end up in a strange branch of theology trying to make the text say something other than what it most obviously says. Um, not just about replacement theology, but, but consider this. Read 11.26 again, Steve. Eleven twenty six, And in this way, all Israel, Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, keep in mind that this is a passage from Isaiah 59 that are the prophets. He's loosely quoting Deuteronomy 29, 29 and his doxology. He quotes Isaiah again in verse 34 and quotes Job 41, 11 in verse 35. Paul is making this point from the law of the prophets and the writings. And listen to what he says here. He says not only that all Israel will be saved, but when he's quoting Isaiah, he says the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from whom? Jacob. Now, I just want to get something out there. I, I know that not everybody in the room has even run into this lie, but it is in every mainstream denomination that somehow or another, now that you're in Christ, you're a spiritual Jew. Can I tell you that is not true? It's never been true. You are grafted into the blessings that are given to the Jewish people, but if you were Norwegian, you do not become Jewish the day that you were born again. Uh, and Romans 2, that is used to quote it, among two men who are Jewish, the one who is circumcised inwardly is the true Jew, doesn't mean that between a Jew and a Gentile, you're really a Jew if your heart is circumcised. This is, this is madness. I want to prove it with this last thought here. He doesn't say turn godlessness away from Israel. Who does he say turn godlessness away from? Isn't it funny that people claim to be spiritual Israel, but you've never heard anybody claim to be a spiritual Jacob? I think we should suggest the term. Because if they're spiritual Jacobs, then they're spiritual deceivers and supplanters. And maybe it's a more fit title. Let's let Israel be Israel in the Bible. And uh, let's recognize that if you were born outside the commonwealth of Israel and not raised in a Jewish home, that you remain in the state you were in when you were called, just like Paul told the Corinthians. And that it's a privilege enough to be brought closely to their God the way that Rahab is. And he has become ours in Messiah. But we have not supplanted them. Third, let's do something just as an exercise. You know how much I love the text. You know that I believe in, in errant uh, verbal 
plenary inspiration. Every syllable is God-breathed on the page. And yet, the Bible employs uh, colloquialisms, idioms, uh, metaphors, parables. Uh, and in some cases, the, the use of idiomatic expressions like hyperbole. For instance, we have a speed limit, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So when we say speed limit, that ought to be as fast as anybody can go. But does it apply to a policeman who's in pursuit? No. Does it apply to an ambulance trying to save your life? Okay, so when we say speed limit, what we're saying is the limit for the vast majority of people barring uh, extenuating circumstances, right? Yes. I'm going to hand out a few scriptures. I want to show you something. Uh, Nick, you take Genesis 6.13. Andrew, you take Genesis 6.17 through 18. Sam, you take Acts 2.46 through 47. That way we'll get just kind of a flattering from the Older and Newer Testament law portions of what I'm speaking of. Genesis 6, 13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Okay, now... I believe God wiped out the earth. He wiped out the known civilizations of the world. I think the flood was global. This is not an area where I'm departing from the text. I literally think every mountain was covered with water because I think that's what the word says. And yet, none of you believe that the flood itself wiped out Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? right? Or else how are there any human beings here? But he says, I'm going to put an end to all people. What's implied there? Except the people he's already said he's going to save. Does, does that make sense? Yes. So I take the Bible as literally as you can take it, and yet when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I do not look for road stripes on him or the drunk bumps in the center. When he says the way, he didn't literally mean that you should tread upon him. When he said, I am the door, you don't look for a doorknob in his chest. You don't take the scripture any more literally than it meant for you to take it in that moment. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Okay, how about Genesis 6, 17 through 18? I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the earth, you and your sons and your wife and your sons with you. If we stand and literally fight and say, hey, this must be taken literally. Well, of course you take it literally, except for... The seven pairs of two of, of the animals that were brought on board, right? Yeah. In other words, when you have statements that seem to contradict, they're not contradicting, they're to be taken in light of each other, right? right. So when we say all Israel, uh, I think that it's, it's fair to say we're not talking about numeric totality, we're talking about the extraordinary majority so that any reasonable person looking would go, he saved the nation. Not necessarily every Israelite that's ever lived. Certainly some Israelites are already damned. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, let's do the Acts 2, 46 through 47, because this is in the Greek language, but it belies a Hebraic understanding behind the text, and you'll hear it. Acts 2, 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So when they were getting flogged, were they enjoying the favor of those people? When they were commanded not to teach in this name, were they enjoying the favor of those people? So what does it mean, enjoyed the favor of all the people? The vast majority of Jerusalem was in favor of these guys. That doesn't mean that there was not a singular person in Jerusalem. Does that make sense to you? Attacking Romans 11.26 based on um, a singular Jew who's not a good guy or something like that is really kind of absurd. This is an obvious use of hyperbole in the Bible, and yet the whole Bible is pointing at something. The salvation of the original people that God led across the Jordan. Amen. And before he left, left, before he led them across the Jordan, what body of water did he lead them across? The Red Sea. Did he intend to save every person that crossed the Red Sea? Yeah. Their faithlessness prevented it. Would you say, though, that Israel didn't cross into the Promised Land? No. There was a generation where every single Israelite did. When we're talking about the salvation of a nation... We're talking about a day in which a generation exists that the overwhelming vast majority of the nation comes to the Lord. Does that make sense to you now? Okay. Uh, Before we move on, and we're going to read some prophets here, uh, let's take Romans 11, 28 and 29, and let's apply this appropriately to the subject because you hear this applied inappropriately always. Who will read that? Uh, Justin. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies of, on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Sorry. God's <laughs> gifts and his call are irrevocable. Who is that statement about? Israel. It's about Israel. You'll hear that applied to any situation in which, uh, well, how can that guy still do healings even though he's a drunk? God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. Well, maybe you can apply that, but it's certainly not the context that it's written in. He's saying that God's plan to his people to save them will never change. And I want to show you where he got that idea. Is that okay? Yes. All right. Uh, promise we are studying Joshua tonight. Here's 14 scriptures that will help you. Okay? So, um, Rob, let's start with you. You're going to grab Isaiah 11.10. Through chapter 12 and verse 3. <coughs> Justin Treister, Isaiah 45, 15 through 24. Boja Regina, Isaiah 54, 6 through 14. Natalie, Jeremiah 3, 14 through 18. Mandy, Jeremiah 30, 17 through 22. Christy. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. Steve Thomas. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. Joyce. Jeremiah 33, 23 through 26. Joyce. Frank, take Hosea 3.5. Bob, 
Joel 3, 16 through 21. David, take Amos 9, 14 through 15. Joy Dang, Micah 7, 15 through 20. Cody Schmidt, take Zephaniah 3, start in 12 and plan on reading through 20 if I don't stop you. And Chris, you take Zechariah 10, 6 through 12. Does that sound like I cherry-picked a scripture somewhere? Like I'm hiding from some area of the Bible? (laughs) Obviously, most of what I picked is from the prophets. There's a reason for that. They are speaking about the future, and I wanted you to see that. Um, As much as Joshua led these people after 40 years to cross the Jordan, and they're walking into their inheritance, King Jesus is going to lead Israel, the nation he is the king of, into their inheritance. I can promise you that. And we focus very much so far on the victorious overcoming kind of faith that Joshua displayed. The way that uh, meditating on God's word causes you to win battles. We focus very, very much on how Joshua affects you. And we're going to finish there tonight, but I don't want you to miss the whole forest for the tree that we're emphasizing. If you walk away from the study of Joshua with some understanding other than a victorious, conquering Jesus Christ is leading Israel to victory, then you've missed the point of the book. Okay? Amen. So let's take our first passage. Isaiah eleven ten through 12, 3. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams, so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day you will say, I praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's one of the reasons I chose that first. Number one, there is no way that you can contort that scripture to have already occurred. Right? All you got to do is go stand at the Euphrates. <laughs> or, or go stand uh, uh, anywhere near the Mediterranean Sea. And as long as you still see water there, you know that this has not occurred. Yeah. Secondly, do you know John 7 that we all love so much? We're on the last and greatest day of the feast. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. And John writes the note there, By this he meant the Spirit. You know what they were singing and what was happening in the background? This passage. With joy we draw water from the wells of salvation. They were waiting for salvation. Now, 
The reason that I'm pointing that out to you is if you have found what they were waiting for first, that does not mean that it doesn't exist for them. It just means that you were favored in a way that nobody expected. That's the attitude with which the New Testament is written. Okay, let's take our next one. Isaiah 45, 15-24 Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Savior of who? Israel. Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace. Now, the age is everlasting. Let's stop there for just a second. If you try to twist this scripture into something that has already occurred, then how has Israel been saved with an everlasting salvation never to be put to an end? From the time this was written, they've been put out of their land by Assyria, out of their land by Babylon, dominated by Rome, and then later dispersed. And only in 1948, on May 14th, did they get to come back to their land, and they're the subject right now of international scorn and scrutiny. So how could we twist Isaiah uh, 45 into having happened already? You can't. And again, if you make us the Israel that it's speaking about, then what do you do with of my own race, my brothers, uh, and spiritual Jacobs? <laughs> you follow me? Yeah. Okay, finish, Justin. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what it is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, but by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. Is, is, is there any room for ambiguity in that? Consider that we are Rahab so far in the story. And if Rahab was so excited that she got uh, saved, that she decided that God was her God and not theirs. How stupid would that feel? In a historical perspective, that is exactly what's happened. Now, at this point in history, because there are so many Gentile Rahabs, who have believed, and so very few uh, uh, true Israelites who have believed, we act as if this is ours. The book of Joshua clearly corrects that for us. There is a day coming when the entire nation is saved. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 6-14. The Lord will call you back as 
that you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In the surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make you battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Is that your... I'm sorry, one more. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. Terror will be removed. When I was just in Israel, they threw bricks at our car uh, as an act of terrorism. Not, not Jewish children, another group of believers. Listen to the way that this passage begins. The idea that Israel has done something wrong and now God no longer favors Israel is addressed in the beginning. Even if he did turn his face away from her for a moment, he promises to turn back and never turn away again. Did you hear the part about the mountain shaking? Uh, uh, this is a, a loose quote. Isaiah is quoting something that happened much earlier in history. It was Psalm 46. Does anybody know Psalm 46, love 46? It's written by the sons of Korah. And they say, even if the mountains give way and they fall into the heart of the sea, we're going to trust the Lord because they saw the earth swallow their father while God was angry at his rebellion, but they didn't participate in it. So saying that God got mad at Korah and wiped it, and, and, and so there's no descendants uh, would be something similar to saying God got mad at Israel and now his plan's not for them. Isaiah is referring back to another time in Israel's history where God was angry with the priesthood but spared their children and showed kindness to them. You want to know why this is such good news for you? It lets you know that when God makes you a promise, He's going to keep it. But don't you want Him to keep His promise to everyone else too? Listen, if you can replace Israel, then Muslims can replace you. And Mormons can replace you. And Jehovah's Witness can replace you. Okay? And the sensitivity that says, well, Israel's kind of a touchy subject, so with our Muslim friends, let's not bring it up. Forgive me, but how the hell would you ever share the gospel if you cannot talk about the nation that he's the king of? Amen. Okay? I reject it totally. The idea that you would give away a New Testament only, thank you, Gideons, for that terrible mistake, because somehow or another it's what's important. No, you don't know what you're being saved from and to. It's like turning to the last act in a play and having no idea what's gone before it. No wonder we developed such bad theology. Okay? Essentially, this book is about a people that he made a promise to. And he ties that promise to a specific land. And he lays out a plan. And what you see in theology is people that are faithless that God will carry out that plan.
trying to twist the plan and contort it in a way where it looks like he's keeping it. You don't have to do that. Uh, God was willing for almost 1,900 years to leave Israel outside of their land. He was not threatened by that. He's not personally insecure about it. He wasn't biting his nails going, people will think I can't do what I said. Because he had promised in advance in a single day, I'll make them a nation again. But during those 1,900 years, Christian theology developed to explain away Israel. If you love the book of Joshua, you have to be in love with the verse that says, the whole nation crossed. Amen. By the way, when it says the whole nation crossed, have you read the first chapter of Joshua? The wives of the Transjordan tribes never crossed the Jordan. But it says the whole nation crossed. Why? Because their heads did. Okay? My, my, my point is we try to get so technically precise that we're missing the point. Okay? Uh, let's take Jeremiah 3. I'm probably kicking a dead horse here, but it's worth doing a little bit. Because it's not like you're going to hear Joel Osteen talk about this. Oh, Ooh, good word, Pastor. <laughs> Kick us some more. <laughs> Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds from my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. You mean to tell me if they're faithless? His response to that is to raise up good shepherds that will teach them to be faithful. Man, we serve a God who does not throw you away because you screwed up on Monday. He just raises up good teaching for you. And He lovingly guides you. I can't believe that my friends in the eternal security camp could think that their salvation is secure, but Israel's was not. I, I cannot believe that. I don't happen to be in that camp but I do understand the nature of God is that he does not give up on a person. There are people who give up on God, but God rarely gives up on a person. Uh, keep going, Natalie. I'm sorry. I was very rude. And I'm going to be so much more tonight, so when I say I'm sorry, that's not actual repentance. That's repentance in the way that most people talk about repentance. It means I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it again. Wow. That's a good word. have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds to be or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jer- Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. Does that sound like a pretty firm promise? Yes. Look, obviously we can do this a lot. You have your list of scriptures. I want to cherry pick a few now so that I don't glaze over uh, your eyes with this. Who had Jeremiah uh, 33? Me. Take that one. Read that one. Jeremiah 33, 23 through 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? 
So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with, with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Uh, does that scripture pretty well strike at the heart of the issue? Yes. I kind of think it does. I find it humorous that it's within two chapters of the only statements in all of the Bible about the new covenant. And we're sure that that is literally true, but this, this can't be. Uh, Obviously, if you're in here tonight, you probably have some admiration for Israel, or at least you have no animosity, or you're going to have a real hard time with me, right? So I figure that you came here and this is not the chief problem confronting you. But you do need to be able to recognize something. All doctrinal error arrives in a satanic place. Hmm. It just needs, needs the time to mature and develop so that you can see it. Anytime you attempt to replace the people or the place or alter the plan, that, it's Satan that's behind that no matter how good intentioned people are. Hmm. Reject it. Go right back to the foundation of the law and then look at the very first book of the prophecy uh, in Joshua and say, hey, the whole nation crossed, man. Let's I don't know exactly how God's going to do it. I bet it's going to be supernatural. Because I don't know how they stepped into water. Their feet were wet, but by the time they hit the ground, it was dry and so were their feet. But you saw that in chapter 3. You know, uh, Not just in one generation, in two successive generations he did that. I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but I bet he's going to open a fountain and cleanse a nation in a single day. I bet they're going to look upon the one they pierce and mourn like one mourning for an only son. I bet when he says he can turn away godlessness from Jacob, he can do it. Uh, In fact, every year you had seven feasts. And in the sixth feast, the uh, Yom Kippur, the whole nation was saved in a single day. And the seventh feast was about seeing that salvation given to all the nations. And that happened repetitively every year, almost like God was trying to prepare us. Don't worry about how bad this looks. I'm a promise-keeping God. Okay? Let's do this. Let's hop back into Joshua, and uh, let's get down to verse 6. Yeah, yeah, that's that. that. See, we're flying now. Woo! Okay, I lied. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to take the time to show you all the times people chose 12 men, okay? But 12 men from the tribes. Now, Jesus also chose 12 men. We do not have a tribal breakdown. But I think it's reasonable to assume, since they end up with their names on the 12 foundations of the uh, building coming down from heaven, since they sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes, I think it's reasonable to assume that this is a prophetic blueprint for those men. That something about what they did would stand for all time as a monument and require something of you, which is where we are going in the chapter. But, Jan, keep reading. Uh, Jordan 
from right where the priest stood to carry them over with you and put them down in the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future where you, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that. I'm sorry. Tell them that uh, the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. You know why that's important? Number one, it's happened before, and number two, nobody in this generation, other than Joshua uh, and Caleb, had seen the Red Sea cut off. They had not seen it. And so, God is not just the God of your fathers. He's also your God. We have a fine way of glorifying the previous generation's miracles. It takes the pressure off of us. It's like we know someone who saw those things. Mm -hmm. Every generation is responsible for seeing their own supernatural workings. I've noticed that in the charismatic Pentecostal community, we like to lift up generals. We, we want there to be heroes who are great men who go do something because then we don't have to. The whole point of this task was so that when their children asked, their children would learn it was just as possible for them as it was their parents. Amen. I'd like to hand you a few passages uh, about that. So, let's take uh, Christy. You do Deuteronomy 6.20. Patricia, you take Exodus 12, 26. Um, Matthew, you take Ezekiel 37, 18. Wade, you, uh, you grab Psalm 145, verse 4. <coughs> Buddy, Psalm 71, 18. Kim, Psalm 44, 1 and 2. Abimbola, Psalm 78, 3 through 7. Let's, let's start there and see where it takes us. Deuteronomy 6, 20. In the future when your sons ask you what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with His mighty hand. God intended in every generation for His miraculous salvation, His miracles, His uh, judgment of the gods of Egypt, His mercy to those who were covered under the blood, for those things to be passed down from generation to generation. You know what? You were never supposed to take your children to church to learn about God. That was never supposed to happen. You were supposed to teach your children as they asked you. When they went to church, they were to be able to be strengthened by the other children who were talking about the same things. Somehow or another, we've transitioned this responsibility to someone else. When in every parent's life, you're praying for your child to speak. Your friends around you that have children, you're like, so-and-so already started talking, I hope my kids are. You worry about their development. And then as soon as they start talking, you're like, when will they shut up? (laughs) 
And they get in this stage where everything is why, 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 why. And there's no end to the why. God put that in them as a prompt to you so that you could teach them. So that you could teach you. They ought to see mom and dad praying about tomorrow's trials so they can see mom and dad rejoice when God comes through for them. Amen. You cannot Amen. keep these things separate from your children and expect them to grow in the faith. Amen. People bring us their children. They're like, oh, man, they really need something. I'm like, well, <laughs> sound like they need new parents. Where, do, where could we get some new parents? God will make you new. Amen. If you've been falling down on that job, stop it. Stop sinning. Let's, let's pick it back up. He said, but they're already 17. Well, then you've got a whole year. You know what can happen in a year? Okay. There is no mistake that the disciples were teenagers. Uh, in some people's minds, they were early 20s. But certainly John, the, the, the Apostle John... Was, was young when he was called. There's no mistake. This is the age when they want to change the world anyway. How about you kick their butts off of video games? How, how about you put in them something to fight for? Instead of just trying to restrain them all of the time. It doesn't work. Okay? God put it in the hearts of children to ask questions. Okay? Don't be the biggest problem in your own child's life, punishing them with the bigotry of low expectations. Wow. Don't do it. Oh, Require of them. Demand of them. And when they get anywhere close to succeeding, praise them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, Amen. The next generation depends on what we do here. Yeah. Okay? Now, I've helped many of you in this regard, but there's a limit to what your pastors can do. And I drug people out of bed. We put them on moving crew. We put hammer in their hands. You know, but there is a day coming when we'll be too old and crepitous to beat your children into shape. That's why God gave them to you. Okay? There's going to be a lot of teaching coming on that area soon in our church because we're raising children and we want them to change the world. Amen. 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 Let's take the next passage. That's a good word. Now, when it happens that your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to say it is the sacrifice of Adonai's Passover because he passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared, <clears throat> spared our household. You could also write down Exodus 13, 14 when they actually do it. And the days to come when your children ask you, what does this mean? Say to them with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Jews still read that today as us being them. See, there was never supposed to be a time where a generation lost the witness of God as not happening personally in their generation. Have you noticed that children that grow up in church are often brats? Yes. They often have no relationship with the Lord themselves. That's not God's fault. It's their parents' fault. Maybe if we didn't have hypocritical liars as pastors and parents that were part-time Christians not nearly as committed as the homosexual community is to being homosexual to their Christianity, this wouldn't be the case. My children uh, have got big problems in their life. And, and those big problems are that we use a size 12 on them when they don't do right. 
They're not hypocrites. They love the Lord. They're full of problems. I mean, I got one of them that is capable of punching you in the face. And he's also capable of praying for healing. And we're working really hard to make sure that salvation wins in his life. Guys, this is our job. The reason that they set up these monuments when they crossed the Red Sea and when they crossed the Jordan was so that you had the opportunity to impress into your child as your responsibility the saving power of God. That's not giving them a track and it's not giving them to some old lady in Sunday school to teach. You know, you're talking about humiliating? Take 13 to 18-year-old people the kind that stormed the beach of Normandy a few generations ago, and put them in a a classroom where we put felt stickers on a board. Okay? They are meant to kick down the gates of hell. Amen. They're meant to do damage to the enemy. And if we patronize them, tell them that their job is to play video games, uh, eat pizza, and have youth lock-ins, no wonder they think church is a joke. God filled them with all kind of hormones. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? That was so that they would have the will for hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. And when you deny that, they look for other things to do. Let's read uh, (coughs) Ezekiel 37, 18. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? The sons of your people. The reason we put this one on the screen is the NASB gets it right. The NIV dynamic translation calls this your people. It's not your people. It's the sons of your people. Even the prophetic signs given to Israel were not given for the old people. God bless us old people. They were given to the old people so that the sons would ask the old people, hey, what's that mean? And see, what God is doing is He's investing in the old people a sign that they can teach. There's a a respect immediately there. Because the young men and young women ought to look at their parents as the Bible answer man, not someone else. There's never been a more biblically illiterate generation than there is now. You have to go back to to pre-Reformation times. And this is why we have the heresy streaming from our pulpits. The masses don't even know when they're being lied to. They don't know when prosperity pimps are just stealing from them and raping the church. They have no idea because they don't read their Bibles. And if they did, they would see immediately that what these people are saying is not true and they have selfish ambition or in it for personal gain. My God, all you'd have to do is walk to the church parking lot and that ought to be so clear to you that even the densest among us could see it. But instead we equivocate and we make excuses about why somebody needs a $50 million jet because we do not know the word. That has to stop somewhere. I'm saying it stops with you. Do you know why? We're studying the book of Joshua. It's not a book of platitudes. It's it's not a book about things we should ascribe to. It is how to take your foot and put it right where faith says it must go and drive the enemy out of your home. 
Drive the enemy out of your workplace. Drive the enemy right out of your family and win in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we can do it. Yes. We, we can do it. Look, why, why? there was a time period we couldn't gather five people to hear this message. And we've been preaching the same message since yes. the beginning. Yes. It's because you're dissatisfied with the sugar substitute all around us. It's a lie. Yes. This is real and you can do it. Yes. Play the next passage. Hallelujah. Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. God has always meant for this to be generational. There is an exponent in the generations. What Abraham passed to Isaac and Isaac passed to Jacob, look at this. Abraham could barely start a family, right? Isaac fought to have a family, but it didn't take him until he was 100 by the time we get to Jacob, the man popped out a nation. Yeah. That's because there is an exponential growth inside of generations. When it takes you a whole lifetime to master, you can pass to somebody so quickly, yes. especially when they're your children, and you don't ship them off somewhere as somebody else's responsibility, but you have them right next to you. They will learn from what you do right. They'll learn from what you do wrong. They will be learning all of the time. Joshua starts so far ahead of Moses. I mean, he does. He inherits all of his strengths and none of his weaknesses. That's how discipleship works. Amen. Start with your children. Amen. Who had the next one? Psalm 71, 18. Even when I am old and gray. Amen. Do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation. Your might to all who are to come. Okay, let's just uh, go ahead and stomp on all the toes here. Why do you want to stay alive? What for? I mean, what on earth do you want to fight to stay alive for? If it's not to tell the gospel to the next generation, then you're wasting your life, wasting the air that we're breathing, and wasting God's time. Amen. We are here to declare to the next generation the gospel. And I've noticed that a man will spend his last dime to stay alive. And he wants you to come and tell him the gospel. The only reason he's supposed to be alive is to share the gospel with the next generation. Uh, I, I'm just going to get real personal for a minute. I have lots of family members that do this thing. You know what I'm talking about. You've got to come see me. It could be the, the last time you ever do it. I'm like, my God, you've been saying that since I was 12. <laughs> and you hadn't ever said one other worthwhile word either. You want me to leave my hand at the plow to come visit you in your death? The purpose of visiting the aged was to encourage them that they still had purpose because they did, sharing the gospel. That was the purpose. You, you, so on both ends of the spectrum, look how we're missing this. In the children, there is no challenge. There is no impartation of the gospel. Once we get done with our work career, there's nothing left in life for us to do because there is no impartation of the gospel. Wow. And the gospel fixes both. It gives your children a purpose and it gives your parents a purpose. Yes. We need the heart of the gospel. Joshua, they hadn't, they hadn't even crossed over yet and they already have a job to do. Amen. A job that involves them and their children. Amen. Oh man, but the next one. <coughs> Psalm 44, 1 and 2. We have 
heard with our ears, O God. Our father have, our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hands you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made the fathers flourish, made our fathers flourish. They never said we learned from our rabbis. Mm -hmm. They never said we learned from our priests. Mm -hmm. They never said we learned from our Sunday school teacher. Who did they learn from? Fathers. 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 If you grew up fatherless, I understand. A bunch of us did. God will be a father to the fatherless. Get in the book, and he will extraordinarily, extravagantly change your life. Uh, Did we have a Psalm 78? Psalm 78, 3 to 7. What we have heard and know, what our fathers have told us, we would not hide from them. We would not hide them from our children. We would tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established a law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Doesn't it sound like revival was supposed to carry on from generation to generation? Yes. Yes. Look, that's in our hands. That's, it's easy to blame it on, on society at large. But let's start with your household. Uh, Genesis 18 says God chose Abraham to direct his household. Right? Why did he choose you? Let's start with your household. This is a time in life-changing ministries when we're, we're having babies. Like, we, we need to start teaching on celibacy or something just so we can keep up with the children's church. It's crazy. You know what God's put before us? An incredible opportunity. I mean, it is extraordinary. Usually, some... Six-foot-tall icicles got some sappy, wimpy words about, you know, our children really are our future. Like he's quoting Michael Jackson or something. (laughs) Our children are actually supposed to be the next generation of soldiers. Male and female. They're supposed to be able to take the tenth spike of JL and jam it through Sisera's head. They're supposed to be able to chop down that Asherah pole. They are supposed to grow up with a, a holy hatred for what is wicked and a love for what is righteousness and do you know where they learn things like that starting with their home yes oh man pick up that you need it there is something profound that i want to get to tonight right like no more beating around the bush just get it but there's one more scripture string we need to do so that you'll understand you ready okay frank uh actually let's go to the back of the room Oh, and I gotta be able to see. Yeah, Frank, you take Genesis eight sixteen. Uh, Darius, you take Genesis fifteen seven. Curtis, you take Genesis nineteen twenty nine. Wade, you take Jeremiah 23, 3 through 6. Steve, you take John 15, 19. Chris, Revelation 18, 1 through 4. Judah, you take 1 Peter 2, 9. 
After this, we'll be so back deep in the test, you'll be excited. You're going to know you learned something from Joshua 4. You'll be changing your life. <laughs> sometimes I preach about what's there. Sometimes I preach about what I want to. <laughs> when you start a church, you can do the same thing. <laughs> Damien. Damien, I'm sorry. I called you Darius. My wife has corrected me. That's good. It's good to have a helpmate. I'm also picking around the room because I'm having those senior moments. And some of you I've known my whole life. I can't remember your name. <laughs> I mean, I just, I've just known Charlie for, you know, since I was 18 years old. But I'm like, you're Caleb. <laughs> it's been that kind of week. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I can't. What's wrong? Which Steve did you Either. <laughs> it, it is good that when I can't remember your name after 25 years, I can still remember a scripture. I don't remember where we started. Right. Darius is in Romania. Damien is here. Starting Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives. Now listen, this could be so easy just to skip over. What was the ark to Noah? Salvation. Salvation, man. I mean, I don't know about you. I might have tended to want to keep it as a second home. Every time it rained, I might want to be close to it. <laughs> and we talk a lot about why he got drunk afterwards because of all the animals and stuff. But remember, they all left and the ark was still there. You know? I, I was thinking of Mr. Bob. He, he had a house and he had an RV. And you go visit him sometimes, and he's living in the RV on his house property. You're like, what's going on? Then you go inside, and there's all of these women everywhere, and you get it. Like, <laughs> we have a tendency sometimes to want to camp in the last thing God did for us. But the truth is, he is always, no sooner do those floodwaters recede than God says, come out of the ark. Sometimes we want to stop where he did the last thing and we don't realize how faithless it is, but we're like, yeah, he'll never do anything like that again, so I'm going to stay right here. Wow. When what we need to do is shut the door on and go, that was good, tomorrow's going to be better. Amen. Amen. And that kind of victorious living is Joshua. I mean, after I beat Jericho, I'd have just made my home there. Like, I did it! You know, he didn't. He didn't. He just went right on to the next one, right? It's like Samson's jawbone. I'd have bronzed that thing. I'd have kept it. But he didn't. He threw it away. The point here is that God is always calling his people from something to something. In your rearview mirror ought to be your old life, yes, but it also ought to be your old successes. We have to move forward. We have to. So no sooner does Noah save the human race than God's like, come on. And, of course, he stumbles along the way. And you're going to stumble along that path, too. But as long as you are trusting Christ, you've not fallen. Yeah. I mean, Noah's life finishes just fine. He's not called a drunk in the New Testament. Okay, let's take our next one. Yes, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Darius is a poet in, in Romania whose wife is pregnant right now and we're talking to. So. And I used to work with a Wayne instead of a Wade, and so when Wade first got here, he was Wayne occasionally. <laughs> Both of y'all are so polite, you barely mention it. <laughs> Think of what the man had to leave, everything he had ever known. The gospel is always calling you from something to something. They said, but there are plenty of people on earth that need to get saved. That's not your concern. Your concern is the next act of obedience. Amen. Okay. Uh, who had the next one? Genesis 19, 29. So was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out from the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You know, he sent him out. He could have said, all right, got rid of the problem, now let's build my house. But he didn't. He had to go forward. His, his life was not without repercussion for moving forward either. But if he had stayed where he was, what would it have been like? Okay, let's take our next one. Jeremiah. 23, 3-6. through six. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up uh, to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. You have to be called out of where you were to see the Lord is righteous. Yes. Otherwise, we have a way of taking the bronze pole that uh, Moses lifted in the desert and making an idol out of it. What was once salvation when you camp there too long becomes Nehushtan during Hezekiah's day. It becomes a, uh, an object of cursing. See, he is always calling you from something to something. And when you stick where you were at, now forgive me, I'm just going to say it. Denominations, we've done this. We have square wheels. We've decided 13 things that God once showed us that are amazing. And now that is all we can see. We don't look for anymore. We don't want anymore. We don't talk to people who do. this, And it becomes an object of scorn and ridicule. Because you're not moving with God. You have camped where God once was. Mm. Now, that's easy to talk about Israel that way. Uh, it's easy to talk about some other denomination that way. When is the last time you saw God dramatically save you? Mm. See, you're going to have to put yourself at risk. You're going to have to get out there. You're going to have to try. And you'll find out that the same God who saved you then is still saving you now. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a process of salvation. You're declared to be saved, but you should be experiencing that every day. Peter said, we are now receiving the gold of our salvation. Mm. Okay, who is the next one? John 15, 19. Mm. All right, nine. If you belong to this world, I would, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We need to be very careful that we are always in the process of identifying worldly things in us, around us, mm -hmm. 
things that we've accepted just as life, and we put them underfoot, and we move forward. We need to make sure, because first and foremost, we're called out of the world. It is a strange time in our history where to people that means to leave this ball of dirt behind and go to some other place called heaven. Mm. Nobody who was hearing this thought that. They knew that we were talking about a world system that was contaminating everything and you were establishing the kingdom of God on earth, leaving behind Roman ways and picking up the ways of the king of kings. They knew that. And somehow or another it's all ethereal. It's all off-world, non-tangible. Everything about our faith has become that way when it was actually very practical. I mean, if you lived in Corinth, one of the first things you had to learn was that God defined sexual immorality different than you did. Because in Corinth, they, they grew up with a different system. You know, God's culture trumps yours. Always. Wow. How, how many of you are born outside the United States? Okay, that's a lot of hands in here, so, so let me just insult you all equally. I, I, I cannot care for the United States culture. I don't like it. You all uh, came here somehow. Praise God for that. I'm thrilled. And somehow or another, um, groupings of uh, immigrants tend to revere the culture that they left. Yep. More than they revere the culture of God. I don't know why you do it. Yeah. I, I don't understand it at all. But if somebody came from your country, you overlook everything in their life. Mm-hmm. If if uh, if somebody is sinning horribly, ah, but they're you know they're just they're what from the same town you're from. So what? Right. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to make a decision somewhere in your life that the kingdom of God forms your culture, period. And that America doesn't get a preference, or whatever country you came from does not get a preference. The kingdom of God is what matters. And it's easier to say that than do it. Okay, Paul is saying in Romans 9, man, I hurt for my own race, my own country. So that is natural. But he did not abandon his work among the Gentiles or or disparage or distort the gospel for the sake of his own people. In fact, he was in constant contention with his own people because he was in fact one of them but would not yield to their cultural error. He was ruled by the kingdom truth. Yeah, I hope that like maybe 20 hands went up in I hope you get that. I hope you're because a lot of times we're starting to butt heads over that and it feels like I'm culturally insensitive. That is true. I am. Now let's just deal with it. I don't care. I'm kingdom sensitive. I have absolutely no regard for my own culture or yours. It's the kingdom we're trying to say. Amen. Uh, Amen. Who had the next one? Revelation 18, 1 through 4. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for evil spirits, a haunt for evil uh, for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Mm. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, in Joshua, they're being called out of a wilderness and into the land that they have to rid of its uh, corrupted culture 
and establish the kingdom of God. In the book of Revelation in the 18th chapter, Babylon has infected the whole world. And so every Christian on the planet is being called out of their corrupted culture to establish the kingdom of God on earth. It's the same story. We're called out of the wilderness and into a land that we're supposed to build the kingdom in. So you're disappointed when you get to work, you find out they're all hellions. That's why God sent you. Amen. You're, you're disappointed when you meet your neighbors. That's why God sent you. And you find out that they're pastors and pastors' wives and behave worse than drug dealers and prostitutes. Uh, that tells you something. Okay. Uh, who had that next passage? First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, sometimes progress is slow. It, it can be discouraging. Uh, the truth is, is despair and discouragement are the biggest demons I've ever faced. I actually have never lost a demonic encounter with a possessed person. Never. It's not even close. Uh, uh, Abby can do this. In fact, uh, Olivia, or Olivia, are you in it? Olivia just chews them up. It's, it's easy for her. But the more subtle attacks of you're not making enough progress fast enough. You, you're purposeless. You're not doing any good. for any, Those demonic darts, you're going to fight with for the rest of your life. But if you can take incremental steps and you can look and say, I'm closer to the light today than I was, then you are coming out of something and into something. And that's what sanctification looks like in the Bible. Uh, The closer you get to Him, the more of your own yuckiness you're going to see. He requires more of you as you mature. Of course you didn't have any problems when you were first born again. You thought you were wonderful. <laughs> the closer you get to him, the more you find out, oh, that has to go too. I, I, yeah. thought, I always thought we yeah. were okay with that. <laughs> like, you were okay with that. I was never okay with it. You know? I, I, I wrecked a guy's motorcycle one time, and I was standing there bleeding and being insulted because he was an off-duty police officer. I really had to listen close. And... Um, while he is screaming at me, and there's physical threat being implied, and I have my hands in my pocket just trying to look as humble as I can because he has a gun and a stick. And um, I'm standing there. I'm in, in my own thoughts now, not even saying it out loud. Lord, why didn't you, you tell me? Like, like this motorcycle accident is God's fault, right? Because that's what we do when we make a mess of our lives. It's somehow it's God's fault. And he spoke in the middle of my thought, just, just to me, not out loud. And he said, you don't listen. (laughs) And I realized the lesson the book of Joshua is teaching, when we seek God and we fight the battles that he points us into, you always win. When you take battles of your own choosing, that were not of his direction, they're not based on Joshua 1.8 about meditating on, you always lose. And you can blame him, but he's not a loser. See, see, we win or lose depending on being directed by God. Right? Yes. Now, sometimes we seem like uh, sages to you. Other times we seem like the village idiots. But most of the time, we just know what God's Word says. And somehow or another in your situation, you've made it not apply. Yeah. Like, like, for instance, mm. if you are struggling with sexual immorality, do you know what the Bible says that you're supposed to do with that? Flee. Run. Like, you can stand and fight with the devil. But if you're struggling with sexual immorality, you're supposed to run. 
right? So we can look really on intolerant, but when we see you're not running, you know, it, it's just kind of like, how stupid are you, right? When did you ever win this? In what year of your life have you been able to do what the Bible says you must not do and be okay, right? So there are these cultural things that the Bible teaches, and it doesn't matter whether you feel like running. It, it doesn't matter whether you think you should have to run or whether you think you can handle it. The Bible says flee. So the thing is, is you don't really have a choice at that point. There's no decision-making process for you. You, the decision is simply to obey or disobey God's word. He said, well, I just kind of slipped up. No, the first mistake was you weren't running. Very hard to do what you did while you're running. You know? See, this is really, really important. And, and when they become optional to us, uh, any time you sit at the negotiating table with Satan, can I tell you you've already lost? You have to decide where you stand before you're confronted with it. Which means you need to know what God's Word says. You know what else? You need to share that with your children. And your children need to learn. And they might even need to see sometimes, yeah, Dad got his butt kicked and that's not God's fault. Dad didn't listen. Right? They see the price that you're worried they'll see that you're a failure. I'm pretty sure they're going to see that anyway. <laughs> Why don't you teach them how you handle failure? Yeah. How you yeah. repent? How you yeah. get back up? Yeah. And how that doesn't define your life. Yeah. That, that what defines your life, you don't go down in history as Rahab the liar. Yeah. You, you go down in history as Rahab who was a prostitute, and now the only thing we know about Rahab is that, that she made it in the lineage of Christ, that she's uh, David's uh, great-grandmother, those kind of things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I probably belabored that. Y'all want to get back to four? Yeah. Do you have a minute? Because this is going to be good. Yeah. 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 Did I bait you with it? Yeah. I, I told you this study was going to take a little while. What time you All right. So we just read in six. Uh, pick back up, Jen, in four and, and read down through nine. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Then tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it, crossed, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of the Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan, at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. This, there to this, day. this is such an interesting thing. When you read this, especially in the NIV, you kind of get the impression that the Israelites got the stones, threw them up on their shoulders, hoofed them over to the side of the bank, and then that Joshua set them up. That's not exactly what's going on in the text here. What I put on the board for you is the Septuagint. And that's because the 1984 NIV, which I, I love, I mean, I, I think it's as good of an English translation as we can get, uh, but certainly not without its limitations, departed from all other translators here, and, and it was a mistake. Um, 
when you look at what the Septuagint says and when you look at the way that the Hebrews constructed, it's clear that we don't have one altar here. We have two altars. In the uh, Septuagint, it says, Set and Joshua, also another, another 12 stones, in itself the Jordan, in the being the place under the feet of the priests lifting the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And they are there until today's day. The idea is there is one spot between Bethbara and Jericho that is the center where the priests were standing. From that spot, two things happen. Pick a different color. Twelve men go here, find stones from the area, and they're set up here. Let's just call that altar number two. Because Joshua goes to this space where their feet is, finds stones, and sets up an altar in the middle of the Jordan. And... Um, there's two altars. Almost every other translation makes that very clear. Uh, the Hebrew says the altar is in the midst of... Uh, the first time it appears is in Genesis 1-6 when you have uh, uh, the firmament uh, made and, and God made an expanse in the midst of the waters. Mm -hmm. Okay, And you see that word used exactly the same way always. So there is an altar being set up uh, on the bank where they crossed, but there's also an altar in, uh, in the middle, right where the priest stood. And that is a really interesting and unique thing because we in Christianity have reduced everything to a single altar, a single event. And we don't realize that in the law, the prophets, the writings, there was always more than one altar. I'd like to, uh, to give you some of those just to grab onto is that okay? Yes. Amen. So, um, how about we do this? Bob, you read um, Exodus 27, 1 through 4. David, you read Exodus 30, 1 through 3. Built an altar of acacia wood, two cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each end of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans make a grating for it a bronze network and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network so the first thing that we see listed in Exodus 27 is a bronze altar now it's it's said to be bronze for a bunch of reasons obviously it was uh, secondly it, to differentiate it from another altar but when you ask people, uh, the first, hey, tell me about uh, altar in the temple or, or tabernacle. What you always envision is an altar that is outside, that is just inside the gates of praise. 
So I, I, a lot of you have been through the Exodus study. I don't have time to draw the furniture and lay it out for you, but I can describe it to you relatively quickly. You walk up to something that is 45 uh, by 15 by 15, so roughly a single wide trailer. And it has a, a curtain on the outside, a fence that the trailer's in the center of that's about the size of a Dollar General. And when you get to its entrance so that you're going to go through the courtyard and be staring at the single wide trailer where God lives, isn't that interesting? Um, you have stepped through the gates of praise. That's the first step. The next item that you come to is this bronze altar that we're describing. This is where all sacrifice was made. This is where um, uh, any burnt offering that you see occurs. The next thing that you get to is a, a laver for washing. It was made from the women's mirrors. That's always funny. They burned, uh, they, they melted them down, and it was called a laver. The very thing that they looked at for vanity now would represent the Word of God, and they would have to look into it to see their unclean condition. Um, then you stepped into the tabernacle itself, and in the first room that was called the holy uh, place, on your right, you would come to a table uh, where God's um, bread was. Then you, on your left, there would be a menorah there. It's very interesting. It's, it's why uh, Isaiah 30 says you would hear a voice uh, uh, behind you saying, this is the way, uh, walk in it. It's, that would be behind you and the word would be on your right and the spirit on your left. Well, this takes us to a place where there is a dividing curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. And on the inside of the curtain that you would be facing is the second altar, an altar of incense. When you see that altar, we have seven things, the ark is the seventh, that you face. But between the altar of the incense and the bronze altar are one, two, three, four, five steps. And that's because the whole thing represents the process of grace. There was an altar that would get you right with God, and there was an altar that you went to because you were right with God. The first altar had to do with your sin uh, and how to expiate sin. The second altar had to do with your relationship. It had incense burning on it all of the time. And it's how you went beyond the curtain into the place where God is. We tend to only think of one altar in our life. How do we deal with our sin? But the truth is, in the Bible, there were always two altars. There was one to deal with your sin, and one that represented your ongoing daily relationship with the Lord. And one of our real problems as a people is we've camped at one altar. We see no need. I mean, hey man, are you saved? I got saved in such and such date. Yeah, but I really wouldn't even have to ask if you were saved if you were at the second altar. Right? Yeah. Um, so while we're talking about this, um, you see this in the law. You see it also in the prophets here in Joshua. In Joshua, we have an altar where they actually passed through the center of the water. But we have an altar when they reached dry ground. This one is where God saved them, and this one is a reminder that they must continue to move forward where God will continue to save them. Amen. This one is about death passing them over, and this one is about the life that they're supposed to be entering. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, 
Now, also, another one in the prophets. Um, Chris, read Isaiah 19, 19. I just want to show you that it's a few places. Bim, you go to 1 Chronicles 6, 49. Matthew, uh, I, I read from left to right. The Hebrew people go from right to left. Altar two yeah, is on the Jericho side. I altered my altar. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Isaiah nineteen nineteen. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its borders. See, in your heart something happens. But because something happened in your heart that sets you free from sin, at your very borders of your land, there ought to be another monument. You ought to have gone from a bronze altar that dealt with your sin and be standing at an altar of incense that is your continual carrying your cross daily. See, when you think on this, this imagery, what happens is we all say that we visited the cross. Well, that's very good, but you're supposed to be carrying a cross. Mm-hmm. See, you, you visited the cross of Calvary and got saved. But Matthew 16, 24 says that you have to uh, deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow Him. Yeah. That's the second altar. Mm-hmm. We go to Him to get saved, but then at the second altar, what we're doing is we're carrying perpetual sacrifice of our daily obedience before Him. And it's my conjecture that you cannot really be saved or stay saved, or however, if you're eternal security, I guess we'll just lie and say you never actually got to one of the altars. You cannot be in right relationship with God if you stop somewhere between those two altars. The whole point of this altar was to get you to this one. That was the point. There was never a time somebody go, Amen, I made my sacrifice. No interest in seeing God. So you had to move forward. And God was leading you. In fact, that ark was 2,000 cubits out that way. He's so far ahead of you, you can say, you've got to follow me. You've never been this way before. Okay? Uh, so, uh, First Chronicles 6.49. First Chronicles 6.49. But Aaron and his descendants were the ones who presented offerings on the altar of burnt on the altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense in connection with all that was done in the most holy place, making atonement for Israel in accordance with all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Priest always, whether we're talking tabernacle times or temple times, dealt with two altars. So sometimes, you know, as pastors, we're talking to somebody, we're like, hey, hey, buddy, well, how's your walk with the Lord? Well, I'm saved. Well, good for you, buddy. You made it to the first altar. What I was really asking was about the second one. Mm-hmm. How, how were you doing? And, and your answer let me know how you're doing. Mm-hmm. The last significant thing that you have to point to in your life was the day that you were born. Mm-hmm. What does that mean about all the days in between? Mm-hmm. See, do you hear what we do? When the most significant thing that ever happened to you was the day of your birth, spiritually speaking. Mm-hmm then what does that say about you having matured or not matured since then? See, that was supposed to be a grand and glorious start that would quickly be the smallest thing that ever happened. Amen. Yeah, That's what it is to press into maturity. Um, I'd like to take that further. Do you all have a minute? Okay. So we have a bronze altar and we have a golden altar. We have an altar in the middle of the river and we have an altar 
at the edge of the river. While we're talking about this, you know, we might as well just get to another truth. Um, Justin Treister, why don't you read Exodus 29.4, and uh, Rob, you read Exodus 30.19, and uh, Jennifer, you read John 13.6-10. through 10. I'm showing you two uh, altered, uh, let me say it this way, there's too many numbers involved in this speech. Uh, I'm going to show you four different ways in which your salvation is a more than two-step process. Uh, Four different ways in which something gets you right with God, and then you have to stay right with God because, because you love Him, and that that's the point. In other words, there is no argument between faith and deeds. Deeds are the result of a man who has actual faith. Uh, but I'm going to show it to you in ways that I doubt many of you have seen it. Uh, did you know about the two altars? Okay. Uh, I, I mean, you may have known about these two, but not thought of them that way. How about these two? Okay. It, it's clearly there. It's in, in the Hebraic writings, too. Okay, so uh, who had the passage? Treaster. Exodus 29.4. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. They wash the priest on the day of their ordination their whole body before they put their garments on. Now they're priests. Moses lays his hands on them, their sacrifices for them. Everything's done to them. They don't do anything themselves. It's a lot like salvation at the first altar. You're not the one who's dying. Uh, somebody else died for you. It's a substitution. They get a bath there, a baptism, a whole body baptism. Now let's take our next passage. Rob? Exodus thirty nineteen. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Before they could go and minister at the altar of incense, even though they had been ordained as priests, had a whole body bath, now when they're progressing towards him, they have to wash their hands and feet before they get to the altar of incense. I want to show you why. John 13, 6 or 10. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Hmm. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. The point here is Peter got right with the Lord the moment that he began to obey Him by following Him. That was his whole body bath, his salvation. Now something else is being asked of him that he doesn't understand, and he's refusing to do it. And Jesus said, if you don't do it, you don't have fellowship with me. He said, then do my whole body. No, I don't need to save you again. What I need to do is wash your hands and feet so that he's literally describing what happens at this altar. You get the whole bath. As you go towards him and you find out more is required at the table of his presence in the menorah, and you approach the altar of incense, you needed to wash your hands and feet again because you're growing in the Lord. And it's required for your relationship. And if you will not do it, you're in danger of death. I mean, if, if you continue to read this in Exodus 30, if they get to the altar of incense and they didn't wash their hands and feet, they die. 
Even though they're priests, even though they're clothed with Christ, although they die. See, the idea that one-time obedience means you never have to be obedient again is patently absurd. Uh, That's like saying, because there was an altar here, we never need to set up the altar here. By the way, doesn't Jericho kind of become another altar? An eye, another altar? And every city that they bring down the devil and exalt the kingdom of God become another altar? See, your every step of obedience is your next altar. It leads to an altered state. The good count. Um, I'm obviously trying to move you to a belief that salvation can occur in a moment, but there are more steps beyond salvation to be had. Now let me give you a few passages just for fun. So Ibrahim, you take Acts 2.4. Daniel, you take Acts 4.8. Nolan, you take Acts 4.31. Justin Linton, you take Acts 6.5. Gabriel Stevens, you take Acts 7.55. Rick, Lawhon, you take Acts 9.17. Spencer, you take Acts 13.9. And Tara, you take Acts 13.52. By the way, in your notes, this is about the cross and then the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it features Peter... Stephen, and Paul. You'll hear those three figures in these scriptures. So whoever's got Acts 2-4, we'll wait. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In Acts 2-4, they're filled with the Holy Ghost. So in Acts 4-8, what happens? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, Peter was one of those filled in Acts 2.4. Why does he need to be filled in Acts 4.8? Because you're always progressing from the bronze altar towards the altar of incense. Crossing the river was only part of the issue. The next was setting up an altar on the other side of every obstacle. Okay? And that is an important aspect of your faith, or you view it as a one and done kind of thing. A USDA stamp as a Christian. But the reality is the same man that was filled in Acts 2 was filled in Acts 4. Okay, our next one. Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Do you know who is standing in that group? Peter. This is the third time in two chapters Peter is filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. So when I ask you, hey, are you filled with the Holy Ghost? And you say, yeah. You know, when I was 13... At a camp uh, somewhere in the woods, yeah, that happened. That's not really an answer to the question, is it? Mm. Not asking you if you ever at any time had an experience with the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you if you are having an ongoing experience now. See, we have a way of pointing to the crossing spot. Keep in mind, the rocks for this altar came from this spot. The rocks for this altar also came from that spot. Everything that you do in your life will always be the outgrowth of salvation. Mm -hmm. You're going back to that one who saved you, 
and building something new for him further away from the spot he saved you. That's how that works. We're not talking about steps in addition to salvation. We're talking about steps as the result of salvation. Let's take our next one. We're moving from Peter to Stephen. Acts 6.5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip... He's full of faith and full of Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. All right, then what happens in 755? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Would somebody please explain to poor Luke, who's writing Acts, <coughs> that when Stephen got filled, when he got saved, he got all the Holy Spirit he would ever need? <laughs> why, does, why does poor Luke keep saying he's full of the Holy Ghost? <laughs> Why does poor Luke keep writing about Peter and then filled with the Holy Ghost? He doesn't understand. Let's send him back to doctrine school. Mm. <laughs> or maybe your theological assumption's wrong. Wow, yeah. Maybe you've limited things to a singular altar when there was always at least two. Mm. See, I believe that God doesn't call you to leave Ur of the Chaldees alone. After you've left Ur of the Chaldees, he'll tell you the next place to go, and the next place to go, and the next place to go. And you'll need an altar at every place. Do you know why? Something in you has to die wow. to do what he tells you to do. Yes. That's why you're carrying your cross with you. You're not carrying the cross he was crucified on. You're carrying the cross you will be crucified on the next time. Because every time somebody... Uh, does something you don't like, every time you have an issue of self-governance versus God-governance, you have to be crucified again that you might live with Christ. His work's already done. He's already been crucified. You're going to get crucified many times in your life. Okay, who had the next one? Uh, Acts 9.17 So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul obeys the living Christ, who, who's appeared to him glorified. He, he, he has gone to the house uh, on Straight Street. He's waited for Annas to show up. And uh, he's called a brother. I would say he's saved at this point. But he has to get healed and filled with the Holy Ghost. If it said that he, he, he laid his hands on him and he was filled with the Spirit, is it safe to assume he was filled with the Spirit? Yes. How about in Acts 13.9? But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. You mean he had to be filled with the Spirit there? <laughs> How about 13.52? <laughs> and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were keep, they kept, Paul was in that number. They keep getting filled. My point here ought to be fairly obvious. I don't want to be overly redundant. Crossing the river was only the first altar. You had to build one on the other side, then one on the other side of Jericho. You would have to get, one day God would say, I want a place for my name right here on the threshing floor of Aruna, and you would have another altar there. He trained them by causing them to hunger in the desert. 
He would feed them from heaven and He would move the camp all of the time. That's so that the Hebrews would describe their relationship with God not as an event, but a walk. They walked with God. They didn't one time at a youth camp get saved. They walked with God. How is your walk doing tonight? Did you camp on one altar? Because there might be more altars to go. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes the hardest altar to leave is the ark that saved you. Do you know what this, this place did for me? I'm not as concerned with what that place did for you as what it's doing to you now. See, the same ark that saved Noah could have become a tomb for Noah because he refused to leave it. Yeah. Are, you, are you getting me here? Yeah. Yeah. We are not allowed to camp on yesterday's manna. It'll turn to worms. Yes. You have to trust God every day. Now, I thought of one concise place I could encourage you, because I thought I was going to do a, a we're saved, am saved, will be saved. Uh, I'm not going to do it. We don't have time. But there is one chapter where I can show you the Lord of history, the Lord of your salvation, the, uh, the God who will take you from altar to altar. You ready? Yes. Go to Revelation 1. So everybody in the room should be at Revelation 1-4. Find there. your way there. there. It, it'll there. bless you, I promise. There. 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 John. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. By the way, those are all in Turkey. Amen. Amen. Long time before Aragon had dictatorial powers. Uh, all seven churches were in Turkey. Today, there's very, very few churches in Turkey. Uh, I can't live with that. And it's, it's one of the next altars to uh, be built in our life. Amen. We've already gone to Turkey and seen Christians made. Right? Talked to Toprak yesterday. We're going to keep going, and we're going to win that nation back. Not because it's easy, not because it's convenient, not because we don't enjoy the comfort of our own beds, but because it's what the altar of incense requires. It's a part of our ongoing relationship with the Lord. We want our obedience to be a sweet-smelling aroma to Him, and we really don't care what the cost is. Uh, Salvation is free, but it costs you everything. Everything. Okay. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is. Say who is. Who is. And who was. Who was. And who is to come. Who is to come. In these things you see who was. That's the middle one. That's the past. You see who is. That was the first one you came to. That's the present. Who is to come is obviously the future. He is the God who saved you, the God who was, the God who is saving you, the God who is, and the God who will save you, the God who is to come. Watch how that pattern repeats. And from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Do you hear that? He is presently the faithful, I'm sorry, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. When, when you uh, look at faithful witness and firstborn from the dead um, and ruler of the kings of the earth, we, he uh, was the firstborn from among the dead. Yes. 
He is presently a faithful witness, and he will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, look at the next line. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Well, when did he, um, when did he free you? He freed you at salvation. When does he love you? He loves me presently. When will he make you to be a kingdom of the priest in the future? Do you see how that is repeating regularly? Yeah. That's because this is a, a description of an ongoing relationship. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. You can see him demonstrating that at every age of your life, at every altar in your life, he is the God who was with you at the bronze altar. He is the God who uh, is with you presently at the altar of incense. And he will be the God at the ark when you arrive there. Crossing the river. He uh, was the God who caused you to pass through the middle. He is the God who brought you to the other side. And he will be the God that is there when you face Jericho. Amen. It is about a relationship that is past, present, and future. Always. That's, that's the point. This never stops. There's never a stagnant period ever. It was meant to encourage you in every way that you can be encouraged to one thing. Don't stop. Yes. Keep going. Amen. Okay? Now, it turns out that as men, we were meant to carry something on our shoulders. Okay? Yes. And uh, the ark could only be carried on shoulders. When you carried it by oxen, uh, people died. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they carried the ark of the presence of God into the river on their shoulders. When they got out of the river, they went back and carried a testimony stone out of the river. Do you remember where they carried it? It's verse 5 and verse 20. Okay, On their shoulders. That's where they carried it. We're going to close with a scripture string on shoulders that I think will bless you. Amen. Hey, before I give you the string, can I give you one more kind of uh, sewed, if you will? There is an altar in the heavens where death actually passed us by and His blood was placed. But we're building an altar on the earth for Him. Two altars. The twelve apostles formed an altar in Israel through their work, but the twelve tribes will come in and form it in the land when all Israel is saved. Salvation is a monument at the beginning of your life, but your empowered warfare that you're going through now is the monument uh, that you finish your life with. These two altars show up everywhere. Okay, let's do uh, shoulders and we will finish for the evening because we're 9.30 and still only a two-hour teaching. You know, the other night on demonology, we did five hours. Amen. And then on Shemichal, we did four hours. Yes. You know? Great. Okay, but I get it. Uh, there's not enough padding in the chairs. Um, <laughs> let's do this. Uh, over here, Cassidy, take number 7-9. Matthew, take Isaiah 22 20 through 24. Uh, Wade, Job 31, 16 through 22. Buddy, uh, Luke 15, 1 through 7. Kim, Revelation 3, 7 through 8. And uh, I'm going to take the last one, which will be Galatians 6, 5. Y'all doing okay? Yes. You learning anything? Yes. When we get into the fifth chapter, 
you're going to learn about the chronology and the feast schedule, and you're going to see yet another layer to the book of Joshua. I think you'll be persuaded by the time we cover ten chapters of Joshua that between Joshua and Exodus, you have a key to the book of Revelation. And that if you throw out Joshua and Exodus, it's impossible to understand the book of Revelation. Amen. Amen. Number 7-9. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. Where do you carry the holy things? On your shoulders. See, the glory of God is supposed to rest on men's shoulders, so that's where the holy things go, on your shoulders. Okay. Matthew. Isaiah 22, 20 through 24. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Because the faithful servant carries the holy things on his shoulders. Because the faithful servant carries the presence of God on his shoulders. Like David's favor with God, the faithful person carries a key to the presence of God on his shoulders. You, you have the ability to enter into God's presence at any time. You have the ability to close or open the kingdom of God to people. It's resting on your shoulders. Let's keep going. Job 31, verses 16 through 22. If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, or a needy man without a garment, and his heart did not bless me, for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. If Job was not taking care of widows and orphans, if he was not concerned with what God's concerned with, then he said it would be better just to break his shoulder off of his body. Because as sons of God, we're supposed to carry something on our shoulders. Now, on that note, now that you've kind of got that down, the rocks for altar two came from altar one. The rocks from altar one came from that spot. Here, the bronze altar, that salvation experience that is like altar one, that's where you got the fire from for uh, the altar of incense. You're not allowed to put any fire on it other than the fire that comes from here. Everything that you do, everything that you're carrying, every altar that you come to, it all flows from salvation. It's not in addition to... It's because of and an extension of. The God who saved you then is saving you now and will continue to save you in the future. He is enthroned upon your shoulders, Amen. steering your life. Okay. Let's take our next one. Luke 15, 1-7. Now the tax, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Where do you put the lost? On your shoulders. Wow. Amen. 
Why? Because that's where God is. That's good. You, you are trying to put them close to your Father. It's where the holy things go. You know, most of the time when something that is holy gets touched by something that is unholy, yeah. it makes the first item unclean. But if the first item is God, he can't be made unclean. This is why when lepers touched Jesus, they were made whole. He was not made dirty. You want to know how we deal with the lost or the straying or, or the hurting? we got to figure out how to throw them on our shoulders where we're carrying the holy things. Uh, that'll make more sense by the time we get to the end. Uh, so we're, we're now at Revelation 3. Revelation 3, 7 and 8. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These are the words of him who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The members of this church, to keep his word and not deny the name, they couldn't say, well, I got saved at some point. Now they're having to experience that battle every day. There's pressure on them to keep going. And they're reminded that they have a holy thing, the key of David, on their shoulders. They have the ability to open the kingdom as they go or to shut the kingdom to all who are following them forever. What an awesome responsibility we have. I know it's difficult sometimes when we point at errors that are being made in places, and depending on the severity of the error, the severity of our speech increases. I I have no problem with a brother who sincerely misunderstands the word. These clowns that are selling the word, though, I have a big problem with it. I'm not going to be nice about it. Uh, Six people named in in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, Timothy by name that were distorting the truth of the word. Paul wrote their names in the scripture forever. John wrote Diotrephes in Third uh, John. Wrote down his name forever. Right? That's, that's incredible. We need to make sure that we're carrying the holy things and opening the way for those that follow us because when we refuse to go, everybody behind us gets closed to you're supposed, you know the old saying, uh, I, I don't care about my place as long as I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of God? That's an asinine statement. That, that is beyond stupid uh, for two reasons. If you understood what a doorkeeper was in the house of God and that he has the ability to let you in or shut you, you would understand you're taking the highest position. The second one is the weak-willed hurt that said something like that is far from the kingdom of God. You said it because you thought it was a low position. You didn't care to work hard and make sure God was proud of you. Mm. The truth is, in your ignorance, you claimed a position that is reserved only for the very greatest in the kingdom of God. Mm. To be able to open or close the kingdom to people is everything. And you know what? It depends on your ability to not just get right at the bronze altar, but burn incense at the golden altar. It depends not just on your ability to cross the uh, Jordan or go stand in the waters, but to come out the other side and keep going. Anybody can do good for the first hundred yards. Who had our next passage? I did. Galatians. Alright, then we finally get to close. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, starting in verse four, each one should test his own actions. 
Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Galatians has an interesting back and forth. In verse 3, I'm sorry, 2, you're told to carry each other's burdens. In verse 5, you're told to carry your own load. Uh, A burden is when you see a sheep straying and he's fallen down under his load. And if you don't put him on your shoulders, he dies. It's like a ship that is so overloaded from error that it is sinking and it's going to drive. You help that person. But each one of us was designed to carry a certain amount of burden without sinking. That we're supposed to carry. These are actually shipping terms in the Greek. Fortion and baros. One is the cargo you were designed to carry, and the other is cargo you were not designed to carry. So here's how this works for you. If the glory of God rests on your shoulders, how do you overcome in the book of Revelation? By the word of your testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Those are the two altars. The blood of the Lamb so to speak, gets you from the first altar, the bronze altar, or in this case, through death here. The word of your testimony is your ongoing altar experience. It is the altar of incense. And so what happens is, once we've been to the first altar, the second stone is supposed to be on our shoulder. We're supposed to be carrying it. And it's encouraging everyone else. Do you see the load I'm carrying? You can do it too. That's... It's supposed to let everyone know this is the normal Christian life. And if somebody's carrying things they're not supposed to, you help them. Okay? But you're all supposed to carry a certain amount that is what you were designed for. Amen. Okay? Um, We say all of this because we're about to roll away the reproach of Egypt. We're about to storm the gates of hell. We're about to see Jericho house of the moon God fall to the kingdom of God. To do that, it's going to take people who not only experience the cross, but they're carrying theirs and are being baptized in the spirit. They're looking for the next challenge regularly. That's you. It means that you're not just going to excel with your children at home, which you're all going to do now, but you're also going to advance the kingdom into other homes and households. God has entrusted us with an awful lot here. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Which means we're responsible for what He's entrusted us with. Yeah. Anyone who's been entrusted with the secret things of God must prove faithful. Be faithful in all you do. Don't be discouraged. Even if you find out tonight there are things that you're not doing that's right, the thing is, the voice of the enemy says, You suck. There's no point in getting any better. Just quit now. That is the devil, and he's a liar. He's really good at it. The voice of the Spirit says, you're better than this. You can go higher. You can push further. I will help you. I'm hoping that those of you who have had real bronze altar experiences recognize that the golden altar is within grasp if you'll just try. And they'll help you. Then it's not enough to say the water's passed me by. You have to pass the water spot. I mean, I want to not just leave Egypt. I want all of Egypt to leave me. Amen. Okay? Amen. We can do this and we can do it together.
Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.